Don't Worry, Be Happy. That's a song from Bobby McFerrin, 1988. Just for your information, was the first uh, full a cappella song to ever be number one. It might be the only one, actually, to ever be number one. Uh, it is a simple truth. Don't worry, be happy. But that is a hard reality. And perhaps the most useless advice you could ever get. Don't worry, be happy. Along the advice of such as a coach telling a pitcher, throw strikes. <laughs> or comforting someone when they have someone that is ill or pass, at least they're not suffering. Or it was quick when they died. Useless advice in our life. Don't worry, be happy. But there is a spiritual axiom to this. Right? We either are either worrying or we are worshiping. You are never worshiping when you are worrying. It's distracting. There, there's a, our worries and our anxieties overwhelm our ability to worship. However, try in your life not to worry. It actually only builds anxiety in people when you tell them not to worry. Because then you worry about worrying. Or you worry about that you have anxieties. Our world, our life, when properly viewed and understood, ought to create worry, anxiety, and distress in our lives. When we understand the reality of sin, death, and evil, around us and in us, that ought to worry us. That ought to provide a lot of anxiety in our lives. A few uh, sermons ago, which was a month or two ago from me, I mentioned that one of the historical understandings or definition of evil is that evil is nothing. And maybe that is confusing to us. But in comparison, the idea that, that evil is nothing is that it, when it is in comparison to the reality of God and good, it is nothing in comparison. And I use the imagery of uh, Swiss cheese, right? And Swiss cheese, that the, the evil in Swiss cheese is the holes in it, right? It's actually nothing, but it's part of the Swiss cheese. And, and what's evil about that in Swiss cheese, it actually robs you of cheese in this slice, What's really good about the Swiss cheese, if you like Swiss cheese, is the cheese, not the holes. And so the reality of that is it, the evil is nothingness compared to the reality of the cheese around it. That is not to say, hear this very clearly, that is just kind of a pullback reality and looking at God's view of evil compared to him. It's, it's nothing. But there is a real existence of those holes, isn't there? There's a real existence of evil and the consequence of evil and sin that we struggle daily with. And it's serious. It's not nothing in our lives. It is a daily reality. And we are not to minimize evil. But the point of the understanding is, we're not, is that we want to maximize God. We want to maximize the truth of God, that God overcomes evil, that God overcomes sin, that God overcomes death around us, for us, in us. 
evil, sin, and death are real, all too real experiences for every one of us that create worry and anxiety. And that even word, anxiety, is not even a big enough word to describe what it does to us. And then Jesus says in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. That's borderline, don't worry, be happy kind of advice. And you're like, come on. But here's the rat. When he says this, it's actually acknowledgement that you are troubled, that his disciples are troubled. He knows that they're troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. A reality that Jesus knows we are. Interesting enough, earlier we're just told in just the, in the same actually narrative, in the same place. G- Jesus is in the upper room when he says this. We have these, these chapters in John, right? And, and sometimes we get confused, like, ah, it's a new chapter, a new story. No, John 13 and 14, they're all tied together. It's the same thing. He's in the upper room. He's just had the last supper with them. He's just uh, washed their feet. He's just told them to love one another. He's just told them that they're going to betray him. He says, let not your hearts be broken. In, in John 13, 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled. In his spirit, same word, and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus is troubled. Why is he troubled? This, this word trouble, maybe we have a better understanding. It means to be shaken, to be disturbed to the core, to, to be thrown into confusion. Why is Jesus troubled? What's before him? What is the reality that that he's telling his disciples that is imminent, that just in a few hours is about to happen? He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be put on a cross. His heart is troubled. He's thrown into, he's disturbed in his soul. Our life is not just filled with worry and anxiety, but sin, death, and evil. And when properly understood in our lives, it ought to throw us into confusion. It ought to disrupt and disturb our reality. And it ought to shake us to our core. We know, and I think you know, that you shouldn't and you don't need to fear death. We know and believe, right, we're secured in Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, we're secure. Our, our future is secure, that heaven is a place where there's no pain and suffering, sin and death. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. But, but here's the reality. The manner in which we die, that provides a lot of anxiety in our life. You may know that your future is secure. But listen, all of us think, man, wouldn't it be nice if we just pass away in our sleep, that it's like that. But the reality is, that's not how most people die. Dying is a terrible, terrible thing. It is a miserable thing. Some of us had seen people die around us, had people die around us. It is not a good thing. It is a sad, disruptive thing. It troubles us. And it ought to trouble us. You know some of my experiences you know, of, of diagnosis of a lung nodule in early February. That is a disruptive thing in one's life. 
Some of you have had, maybe had cancer diagnosis or no. That's a disruptive thing in your life. It, is, it troubles you. It shakes you to your core in the immediacy of it. I mean, you may know the truth. I, I can trust in Jesus. I, I know my future is secure. But that immediate reality consumes you. In my experience with pneumonia, let me, let me tell you, I, I'm a person that thinks about my breathing every day because of my conditions. Most of you probably don't think about your breathing. When I had pneumonia, in that moment, every breath was a level 10 pain. Here's the thing, you can't stop breathing. You can't, st- I mean, you want to stop breathing. I actually told Jesse on the way to the hospital, I want to stop breathing because it hurts so bad. That is this disruptive thing in your life that shakes you to your core, that when you, all you can think about is not wanting to breathe, and yet you know the next breath is coming, which causes severe pain. Disruptive. This is what sin, death, evil does in our lives. It disrupts us. It shakes us from the truth around us. All of us experiences these troubling moments in our life. The disciples in this moment, in this upper room, are shaken to the core. We're told that Jesus was troubled, and yet he turns to them and says, let your hearts not be troubled. They are shaken to the core. They are disrupted by Jesus' message in the upper room. What is the first thing Jesus do in the upper room? He washes their feet. That is disruptive. That troubles them because it breaks all social norms. Jesus lowers himself below a slave, below a, a Jewish slave. Well, not even a Gentile slave would do this. He washes their feet. And he serves them. And then he proclaims this message. He, he alludes to and speaks that he's going to go to the cross and die. What? The person that we've been following all these years? And then he says, one of you is going to betray me. And that just really disrupts them. Who? Me? How could that be? In John 13, 33, he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus is talking about the cross and the act of his atonement. Right? And how does Peter respond to that? Peter, let's not blame Peter. He's a representative of all of them. This is what they're all thinking. No, no, Jesus, I will lay down my life. I won't betray you. And Jesus says, no, this is the reality. You will betray me. You will leave me. Jesus tells them what their problem is. They will abandon him. They will lose faith in him. It troubles them and it disrupts them. But he also gives them the remedy. He identifies their issue and he gives them the remedy. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Right? This, this is the night where Jesus is in the midst. He's in the agony of the cross, about to be betrayed. What does he do? This is, this is his worst moment. And he's the one that's lending support. He is the one that's giving words of comfort. In just a few hours also, he's going to be in the garden and say, will you pray for me? The disciples can't even stay awake for that. They can't even comfort Jesus in that moment. But he is the one offering spiritual support at his greatest hour of need. The disciples are troubled because Jesus has altered their view of reality. He's actually given them the truth of the reality of evil, sin, and death that penetrates their hearts and penetrates the world. You see, the disciples, much like you and I, think it's about them. 
think their lives are about them. They think it's what, what they do that matters. They think it's about their work in their faith. They think it's about their morality. It is a works-based view, view of a life. And Jesus disrupts this view in their life. He says, I know what you're going to do. And the remedy is to believe. Not in yourself, but in me. Trust that I have got this. Trust that I am God. He is alone the one that can solve their dilemma. He alone is the one that can solve our dilemma. The gospel is clear. God is the one that saves. Trust in God. Do not trust in your own actions. You are the one that will betray him. He is the one that will save you. Believe God and believe also in me, Jesus. It's interesting grammatical structure. It's actually the verbs we're not quite, quite sure if they're indicative or they're imperative. So indicative statement would be a, a statement of fact. Believe in God or imperative would be a command. And so let's look at it in three different ways it could be. Indicative, indicative. You trust in God, you also trust in me. A statement of fact. I know you trust in God and you also trust in me. Right, which in one way is that it's an idea of a statement of equality, that you understand that the Father and the Son are equal, one mind, one will, one God. Or it can be indicative imperative. You trust in God, therefore you should also believe in me because I am one with the Father. The Father and I share one mind, one will, and we're one God. Or it could both be imperative, imperative, which how most people interpret this, which I think is probably a good way of doing it. Morality, all of them are a fair way of understanding it. Trust in God, also trust in me. In your betrayal, in your troubleness, in your anxiety, in your worry, the remedy is to trust in God, which also means trust in Jesus. Because they, one mind, one will, have a plan, and have it under control. That salvation alone is dependent upon him. John 1.13, the beginning of the Gospel of John says, You were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You were born not by your own desire to be born, but by God's desire that you are born. Born of the Spirit. Born again. All of these statements are true, right? The, the indicative and the imperative, they're all true and accurate. And they all point to the idea that the Father and the Son are both the object of faith and trust, which is what the Gospel of John has been hammering out for a long time, that they are one. That if you, but if you trust the Father, you are also trusting the Son. And the more important statement if you are not trusting Jesus, I'll say that again. If you are not trusting Jesus, you are not trusting the Father, or you are not trusting God. You can't just take half of that statement. You can't just trust, I trust God, but I don't trust Jesus. It doesn't work that way. They are one. If Jesus tells them that they shouldn't be troubled and they should just trust him, that sounds like don't worry, be happy, right? 
It's like, that's not very helpful advice. That doesn't relieve my anxiety because, yes, I do trust you, but the reality of my moment is very anxious. But here, he must have a reason for saying this. He must have a reason to understand, I know you're troubled, but trust in me. Jesus doesn't hold back that reason to them. He doesn't say, well, that's my secret. I'll, I'll just hold that. He tells them. He tells them the reason why they can trust him, why they don't have to be troubled. In verses 2 through 3, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I want to see the, the operative actions in his statement here. Is there anything about your, you doing something or the disciples doing something? Right? The basis of trusting Jesus is not, oh, because you will do this. No, it says, I go. Jesus goes. And Jesus comes back. The metaphor that Jesus uses here is his father's house. In chapter 15, which is all part of the same monologue in the same place, Jesus changes his metaphor and uses the father's vineyard. Both are saying quite similar things. He's just changing the metaphor because when I say metaphor, he's like, I, I, I don't mean it's not true. I'm just, Jesus is trying to describe eternal realities to finite minds. So he's saying, is it actually a, a house that we're going to be in? I don't know. I think it's a metaphor explaining that we all belong together. Is it actual vineyard that we all be in? I don't know. That's a description of heaven that is just trying to describe that we're all connected. Jesus is saying, I go to my father's house and I prepare a place so we can dwell together. Room here, and maybe you've used the King James Version or have heard it, mansions, right? And so it, the better translation of mansions is rooms or, or a dwelling place. And it, it means to be significant dwelling place. But dwelling place. The other time this, this word is used is this in a few verses later in verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And he will come to him and make our home with him. Now, isn't that interesting? I just want you to think about what he says. He's, he will make a room for us in our father's house. The next time he uses that word, it's in reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit, and which says he will make his home, his room, in his house, in us. That's fascinating, isn't it? It's the concept, it's not a physical location, but it's an intimate relationship with God. The reason why we trust, because Jesus is going to prepare a place and where we're intimately connected with God, where he dwells with us, where he walks with us, where he has relationship with us. Elsewhere, the same word that's used in a verb form in just the next chapter, it's the word abide or stay with me, or remain, All right, which is repeated in John 15 over and over again, right, in verse four, 4, abide in me and I in you. It's the same word, our home, our, our room, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide 
in me. The, the idea both in 14 and in 15 that the idea of this room abiding is this is mutual abiding, mutual dwelling together, mutual being home, residing together. And not in a place or location, but in a person and in a character of God. So wherever you and I go, whether in heaven or on earth, we can abide and we can dwell with God. Or, shall I say it better, that God dwells and abides with us everywhere. This is not a future tense thing. This is a present reality for you and I. In John 1 through 12, it's, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave right to become the children of God. You see this, right? There's a, we receive him, that he gives to us. There's a mutuality in this relationship. The Holy Spirit abides and he makes a home in us and we abide in him and we dwell with him. This, this trusting in his name, this trusting, when you say we trust in his name or we pray in the name of Jesus, what we're doing is praying in his character, who he is, the very nature of who he is. Both in the Father's house as a metaphor, both in the, in the Father's vineyard, the point is God is creating a way for his people to dwell intimately with him so he can be with them again. A holy God can be with us, an unholy people. How does he have to fix that? He has to make us holy. Only God can do that. You cannot make yourself holy. You cannot make yourself the ability to abide in him. Jesus is about the business of restoring the relationship of God himself with his people. The gospel is not the people restoring their relationship with God. The, po the point of all this, the command, is not to be troubled, but to trust in Jesus. Rest in this truth and this truth alone. Jesus goes. Jesus goes and he prepares. And Jesus comes back. The very truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus is why they should not be troubled. Why we should not be troubled. Jesus is the one that goes and rectifies the separation that sin puts between a holy God and an unholy people. Jesus is the one that defeats, conquers, is victorious over sin, death, and evil. Only him, by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension. Only Jesus. Jesus alone is the one that pays our penalty for our sin, all of our penalty. He is the one that pays our reparation. All sin needs to be paid back, a reparation. Jesus is the one that pays a, a reparation that you and I cannot pay. We are for only Jesus is the one that can forgive, that can redeem us by his work and his work alone. Only he could do this. And this is the reason why, why you should trust him, because what I am going to do what I have done for you. And now you and I are able to dwell, to reside, to abide with him, our God, forever. 
And so now that we have this phrase that Jesus comes back to take us to himself, right? And uh, here's the thing. Does that mean, is he referring to uh, the resurrection when he comes back at the resurrection? Or is it referring to the second coming for us? Like, oh, he's going to come back and he's going to bring us all to himself. And here's the answer to that question. Yes. The answer is yes to that question. Both are the fulfillment of that answer. But, and here's the point I want to I get to you. Is Jesus comes back to take him to himself. The reality of all this trust is already at the resurrection. In fact, it's, it's actually before that. In, in Jesus' reality, that, that salvation is actually before that. that, that the, a, a gospel understanding of, of heaven, which is the, the metaphor of my father's house my father's vineyard. It's the metaphor for heaven. And you and I, when we think of heaven, we think of up there or a place to be, which is a little extra biblical. But here's the biblical view of heaven. It's actually called the kingdom of heaven, or as most gospels besides Matthew say, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is present where Jesus reigns. Jesus breaks in the kingdom of God. It's always there. He just breaks it into the reality of this earth when he comes in that cradle. There is the kingdom of God, and he reigns. And it becomes ushered in more and more in his reality. One of the realities in which you and our, our job is to, I told you, to proclaim the word of God, proclaim Jesus as we go out. As we do that, as we live out the character of God, we are expanding his reign. Now, it's not dependent upon us. That's a work that he's inviting us in. But the kingdom of God is breaking in to this world. It's not a reality yet to come, but yet it is. It's a reality that is already and not yet. It is all kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here, and it is not yet. Same way as your salvation is already complete, and yet it is not yet finished in you. You and I are linear people. We experience things in a matter of time, right? Our, our under, we are saved, we are justified at the cross 2,000 years ago. It is complete, it is finished, and yet in us we know we are not complete and not finished. There is a sanctification, a process to be made holy, or a process to be changed into his character, which is the completion of our salvation. It's already complete, promised at the cross. And what God, Philippians 1, 6, what God starts, he will finish. If he start a work on you, he's going to finish it. If he has said, I justify you, he's going to finish it. If God makes a promise, that promise becomes a reality. That is the reality of our world around us, that God makes a promise to us, and that promise always comes fulfilled. You and I are living out the promises of God in our life, that we're already saved, that we already belong in the kingdom of God, that we already reside in heaven right now. And the way the New Testament talks about heaven is that it's not a place to be. It's an already now that will replace the old earth and the old skies, and there'll be a new creation in which we physically will reside. We are saved now. The disciples are trouble 
because the idea of redemption and salvation is dependent upon themselves. That evil, death, and sin that overwhelms them. Because they think, it overwhelms them because they think all of their salvation depends upon them. And Jesus, in that moment, with the idea that they think it depends on them, says, guess what? You're going to fail. What? It's been dependent upon us. And he says, yes, and you're going to fail at it. Of course it overwhelms them. Of course it troubles them. Of course it shakes them to the core. And the solution he gives is this. Trust in me, don't trust in yourself. I am the one true God. I will not fail. Will you trust that he will overcome your betrayal? Will you, will you trust that he can overcome your brokenness? No matter how deep and wretched your sin is, do you trust that he can overcome it? That he's not shaken to the core by your sin? Like, wow, man, that's too much for me. He can handle it. He knows you can't handle it. He can handle it. Do you trust that he actually has already conquered sin, death, and evil, and that you are just living out that promised reality in your life. In this world, if we are not troubled, if we're not overwhelmed, if we're not shaken, we will be. We will be. Trust in Jesus. He is the only one that has overcome. He is the only one that can overcome. Don't worry, be happy. Oof. Don't be troubled, trust in Jesus. Here's the reality. You are troubled. Jesus solves it. It's a simple truth, but it's a hard reality. And I want you to listen to it and know that Jesus knows you're going to be troubled. He knew the disciples were going to, are troubled and we're going to be shaken to the core. And this is why he gives the command. Jesus can handle their trouble. He can handle their betrayal, and he can handle your lack of belief, your lack of trust, which is sin, the definition of sin. It isn't the disciples that can rescue themselves out of their sin. It isn't the disciples that can rescue themselves out of their troubleness, their worry, their anxiety, or out of their unbelief or their doubt. Jesus alone is the one that can rescue them from sin, doubt, and anxiety. It isn't you. It isn't you that can rescue from yourself from your sin. It isn't you that can comfort yourself. It isn't you that actually could comfort anyone else in their troubleness as well. It is Jesus. Jesus alone. And that is the good news. Proclaim it loudly to yourself over and over again because you and I need to hear this over and over because today we will be troubled. Tomorrow we will be troubled. Proclaim it loudly to the world, to your friends, to your family, to everyone you encounter because they will be troubled. They will experience the consequence of evil and sin and death in their life. From beginning to end in this written word of God is this message. Trust in God alone.
He is the one that overcomes. May the good news be proclaimed in your life today. And for a moment, may your hearts not be troubled. Let us pray. Gracious Father, loving Son and abiding Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for your promises. We give you thanks for your presence and for your words of comfort and your, for actions of salvation in our life. We are troubled. We are troubled by our doubt and by the evil and wickedness in us. But we are thankful that you have overcome us, that you have overcome our brokenness and all of brokenness, that you are God in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And one day, one day, the kingdom of heaven will be fully realized on earth and in heaven. We pray for this day. We pray for the reality to sink into our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.